Welcome back for the second part of our fourth episode. This one's with Julian Liu, a project director for Shangri-La Hotels and Resorts. So uh, in all of this, what happens to the brand? I mean, does the brand get elevated because you've been doing well on the, you know, you've been doing a better job at creating experience, which then reflects back on the brand and brings up that as a recognition. Where's the transformation from this cookie cutter brand to something that's like, oh, they're part of the neighborhood all of a sudden and, right. and it becomes cool, so, I guess. Yeah, cool cool's a dangerous <laughs> word. Um, you could apply cool to hotels that aren't great, um, but they're cool. Um, it starts off with at a property level. And so if you create experience that engages your, your, your foreign guests and engages your local guests, um, you build loyalty to that property. And hopefully when they travel, they see, oh, there's another you know, of these hotels in this city. Let's give them a try. The challenge is now you have to live up to that brand expectation. Um, and it's maintaining that brand expectation across, you know, multiple hotels is the biggest challenge. Particularly older ones that were designed maybe right. and, a and decade so, or two ago with a very different approach, right? Right. And that's that's actually going to be the challenge moving forward. So, you know, right now, most hotel companies are, are essentially bleeding cash, right? In order to maintain their payrolls, in order to upkeep the hotels. So all your CapEx for the next year or next two years in terms of renovations has gone out the window. So, you know, our focus these days is how do we keep the wheels from falling off the car. Mm. And so the focus has to be on keeping these buildings functioning on a purely technical level, right? Air conditioning has to work, right? The power has to work. People have to feel comfortable. And so how do you then reinvent a brand when your hotel is 20 years old? Then it comes back to service. It comes back to engaging with the staff. Now, how do you engage with, how do you want your staff to engage with your guest? you know, when you're wearing a face mask. So, you know, as human beings, we inherently smile when we're happy. And you're supposed to smile when you greet a guest. Well, how do you do that when you have a mask on, right? And that's really what it boils down to. Huh. Um, you know, you have a barrier. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's psychological. How do you get through that barrier and convey a sense of hospitality, convey a sense of welcome? And, and that's going to be challenging. That's a, that's a temporary challenge, I would believe right that you cannot have the full interaction i mean i have trouble recognizing people in the street they wave at me and i'm like who is that can i only have half the face to tell who they are right yeah um and that makes it even more difficult in a service encounter as you say so uh but i doubt it's going to be permanent uh the way i mean covid will be around for another year or so but as you say maintaining that service standard will probably more more difficult in that way right i yeah i mean it's the way I see it, it it's um, there are certain aspects of human behavior that I think are going to be permanently affected by all this. You can't get through two years of a pandemic and not be permanently affected. Um, there are certain things that will go back to, you know, sort of the new normal. And some of it will, the new normal will be the old normal. So we still want that interaction. But what do we look for now? As a hotel guest, what do we look for? Um, no one, nobody knows. It's, it's everyone, anyone's, everyone's just guessing. Anyone who's telling you they have the answer is kidding themselves. Right. Um, there's going to be a scar. There's going to be a psychological scar after this. 
um, just like there was after 9-11, just like there was after, you know, the, the recession in 08. You know, it will affect behavior. How much it affects behavior um, depends on how fast we recover and how do we, um, you know, what our reaction is going to be in the next year. Arguably, uh, human memory is kind of uh, not, not the strongest if it comes to everyday behavior. So things will permeate, like probably will go back to uh, behavior that we've observed before, which was fairly organic or natural, apart from little bags in the airport that you have to put in the, right, into the right. x-ray machine and security. But otherwise, unless it's mandated by somebody, you go back to what's most comfortable to you, right? Unless somebody says, oh, you have to wear a mask. Even if somebody tells you, not everybody does it. That aside, but uh, you, you'll find back your groove and your style unless you're either paranoid about it or somebody tells you you need to go act in that way. No? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think all of a sudden will be, you know, not everyone's going to turn into a hypochondriac in, in, in a year. And we will pretty much go back to what we were last year. But we are going to be more aware of cleanliness. We're going to be more aware of hygiene. Um, we are going to think differently about health, what we eat. Uh, we'll be more conscious about exercise. Um, and these are things that are not going to be very obvious changes in human behavior, but it will happen. I mean, we are already more conscious about maintaining our health. Um, you know, you can't, I think the level of hygiene level of cleanliness in hotels has to be stepped up and I, and I don't expect sort of the, the hospitalization of hospitality but you know certain things just are not going to be acceptable anymore yeah. so we just have to be more careful with what we do and be more thorough with what we do so speaking of the wellness part and health obviously there's a I mean to me it's like a three-step kind of thing first you need to recognize oh health you know, this is something that exists and maybe I should care about. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of realizing that, oh, I have to do something. And then it's actually doing it, right? It's like right. Uh, realization, acknowledgement, and then execution, if you want, or action, right? Yeah. Um, it works different, probably, at different uh, sort of tiers of society, if you want, right? Sort of mm-hmm. more higher spending guests is probably a little bit ahead in the curve. Uh, where do you see that happening for the broader market, that wellness and health? Unless it's designed, you know, it's like in a passive way that you have to walk more, right? You can you can have different tools of design that create a wellness or a, what do you call it? Uh, I think it's a well standard now, right, mm-hmm. for, uh, for design. Uh, where does that become sort of mainstream, let's put it? I think it's actually, I don't necessarily think it's about guests that have, if you're a higher spend guest, you have more, you know, you're more conscious of. I think everyone's more conscious now of of, of health. Um, it's giving guests choices and opportunities for engaging in activities that are healthier, and it goes beyond just having a gym or, or a spa. Um, it's having menu options. It's you know having the option of if you want a yoga mat in your room, it's having more outdoor space for people to get fresh air. Mm. Um, you know, I think. People have started, and, and, I, and, I, and I count myself within that group, have sort of gained a sort of a greater appreciation for the great outdoors. 
Um, you know, particularly more, during COVID, <laughs> especially yeah, especially who's not hiking? COVID. Come on, <laughs> um, a year ago you wouldn't have caught me dead hiking. I was like, what do I want to walk around for? Um, and now I have to do it just yeah. to get outside, just to get some fresh air. Um, you know, if, if anything, having being stuck in Hong Kong uh, for since February, you know, I walk more. Yeah, you know, I started walking around where I live. I never did before. Uh, before you probably walked more at the airport, or you know, traveling and all that, or in a city you visited and then you walked there right, to explore yeah. a neighborhood, things like yeah. that. And now you're like, well, no, let's my, check out my own neighborhood. How no, that? that's that's actually true. You know, I'm, I'm walking around my own neighborhood. Yeah, and uh, Hong Kong's not bad for that. There's a lot to discover, and yeah. you know, you have to be very attentive to smaller to details, right? To see. Well, where I mean, I, I think one of one of one of the the great benefits of living in Hong Kong. Um, it is a very small place, um, but it has it's sort of has these sort of you know weird microclimates everywhere. You could walk to the beach, or and be in the city in you know in twenty minutes, or you could go up to a mountain in fifteen minutes. Um, you have a lot of options in a very small space. It makes it very convenient. Yeah, spoiled almost, and then you say, Definitely. "Oh, what do I do this weekend?" Right? <laughs> exactly the same thing I did last weekend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So, in the beginning, we talked about innovation in hospitality. So, uh, it's still a bit of a challenge, I think, uh, overall. Uh, some people joke that the biggest innovation was folding the toilet paper in the bathroom in a different way. What, what do you see that has happened in the past? Technology, right? Keyless access to the yeah. room, check-in. Where else do you see that innovation has really uh, come full circle or really made an impact? It's uh, a tough question. Um, well, where do you, where where do you think there needs to be some innovation? That's what's something that's not working right now. I think the approach actually, the approach to F and B has has changed quite a bit, um, and that's been a response to how local restaurants and how standalone restaurants have been innovating, have become more creative, um, have looked you know their menus have changed to adapt to local tastes. Um, and hotel restaurants tend to be the last to react to those. Um, and now there's been more of a push to... Sorry, who do you blame in that case? The operator? Um, or is it the owner? Or, I mean, where, where does it usually fall that... Is it a matter of cost and capex that people don't want to spend that? Or it's, it's been working all along. Why, why fix a... You know, why fix it if it ain't broke? Or, uh, you know, where does, where does the hotel F&B experience fall off the bandwagon? I think it's because F&B is a relatively small component of a hotel's revenue. And so there isn't that as big a drive to spend money to change. Okay. Whereas if you're a local restaurateur, uh, you have to adapt much more quickly or you're going to lose your shirt. Um, you know, take this restaurant, for example. When we opened, we were a Malaysian restaurant. And as once COVID hit, we realized that, you know, and... and I'm Malaysian. I love the menu. And I was very hesitant. I know the concept works. I don't really want to change it. And our partners who are, who are operating the restaurant said, look, we have to change because the market dynamic has completely changed and your competition is going to be different now. And so we have to adapt. And so, you know, it was a humbling experience, basically. You know, it's like, okay, so I know nothing. <laughs> and, and they were right. You know, the, this restaurant has succeeded after changing the concept it was doing fine before it's doing better now even 
in a situation like a pandemic. Um, so local restaurateurs have that drive and they have a little bit more, they're a little bit more dynamic in how they approach their business and they can adapt to the changing market. Hotel restaurants tend to be less so. Hmm. More reactive in that way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, if you were to look at a lot of the hotel restaurants in Hong Kong, they haven't actually changed all that much. Oh, right? I've not. Yeah, <laughs> 20 years and still going it's strong. Still, right. Um, they have a built-in audience and they're, 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 you know, they, they tend to be very, very good restaurants. But And they have their own following. But they're not as driven as standalone restaurants to innovate. Yeah, I think that's a big change in Asia where, you know, say 30 years ago when a lot of the sort of first wave of hotels, international chains came about, they had this sort of recognition with a traveler and then over time they built up maybe a following with the local community. And at some point that sort of spawned those independent restaurants, right? right. And then competition was real. And I mean, there's still a lot of hotels you would go to and you would never think to go walk into the restaurant. I mean, I still don't. I mean, this is yeah. for me. It's a bit bizarre to go downstairs, unless it's a matter of convenience or even the bar is like okay. I mean, uh, well, it's it's because hotel restaurants already have a built-in client base. You know, everyone's going to eat breakfast there for the most part. You know, um, your hotel guests are a captured audience. So if you're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language. Maybe you don't feel secure about going out and trying a new restaurant because you're worried that you can't communicate. And so you just go, you go to your hotel restaurant, figure out the food's got to be, you know, good enough. They speak. You hope English. so, at least. You know, <laughs> so it should, it should be. It should be. be yeah. um, and so it's relatively safe. It's a safe choice. And, you know, but nowadays, you know, people's expectations are much higher. You know? mm. um, and I think you're starting to see hotel restaurants in Hong Kong are actually starting to push push the envelope a little Coming bit. Back, yeah. And yeah. we see those that are third-party operated too, right? The, some hotels that just, they're, I mean, it's been there yeah. to lease out, but those concepts tend to be, or can be a bit stale. But now we see actually quite uh, sort of high-flying restaurant groups coming right. in and, and doing their thing, right? So Right. And it's also, and it, go, it goes beyond. So, I mean, traditionally, a lot of hotels have invited, say, these star chefs to come in and put their name on a restaurant. Um, now, there's still there's still that, um, but they're inviting local chefs with the local following to come in and put their name. You don't necessarily have to be your you know your your Yannick Elenos or your Wolfgang Box or, or or these these sort of global names. Yeah. You know sometimes having a strong local chef with a local following um, builds enough into your brand that you become more localized. Mm. What do, what do you make of like these? Uh celebrity chefs that have 40 stars or I don't know how many 20 restaurants uh, Ducasso, Bolut uh, obviously being the big ones what, what, when you talk about design experience do you think these kind of restaurants have their place in the landscape and every major city should have one or two of those or what's your take on uh, no they, they have their place they definitely have their place um, as long as they're consistent you know hmm. you'll if you go, say, to, to Robuchon, the experience you have there is probably the same as you had a few years ago because their food is consistently good. Um, now, is it the food any different from what it was three years ago? You'd hope so. Right? Hope so. Some hope, yeah. yeah. See if the chef comes around once a year or twice a but, year. Or you know, I mean, those, those, the successful star chefs, um, they maintain their quality mm. and they maintain a certain level of innovation. And they keep changing and adapting as well. 
and that's what makes them. And it's sort of their 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 the sign of quality that you're going to get a good meal yeah. or a good experience when you go to those restaurants. And the moment that starts to fade and you don't have a good experience, and then their their name means nothing. Absolutely. Now you've designed uh, hotels in Shanghai, Beijing, a uh, bunch of city around Asia, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, And you mentioned earlier that the local consumer is getting more sophisticated, right? Sort of more demanding. Yes. That was something、uh, John on our previous、uh, episode mentioned as well. That's why bars are becoming cocktail culture is、mm-hmm. booming more. Do you see any differences between one city and another? How does that express itself? Any? Is it? Would you say it's just a general more demanding consumer? In general, it's more demanding, and, and it's because people. And part of it is social media. People see different experiences. You can witness an experience that somebody else had, you know, halfway around the world, and it. Although you're not experiencing that, it does open your perspective, and it does make you think, "Oh, I, I want that experience."、Hmm. Now, if you can offer something similar in your in your neighborhood, in your backyard, then that becomes you know immediately attractive. Right.、Um, so I think the F and B guests are getting a little bit more discerning.、Um, They also are. It's almost like online shopping, right? So you can read about somebody else's experiences at a restaurant, you know, the click of the mouse. You know, it, it's so you know bad reviews go just you know you know spread quickly. Good reviews spread quickly. Yeah. And the、um, yeah, I mean you have. Reviews or not, at the end of the day, you have a recovery program. That's your operator taking care of it.、Uh, from a design process, though, where do you?、Uh, oh, look at that! Who's in the house? Phil Kim, instigator, <laughs> man of.、Uh, yeah, we got to thank him actually. So shout out Phil Kim, Jerdy Partnership. If everybody designs anything, will you recommend、What? or is this、uh, this a?、Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Where's Phil? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway,、uh, yeah. Shout out to Phil.、Um, sorry. So we're talking about design and、um, uh, how. Okay. There's a there's a service part which you can't influence really as a designer, right?、Mm-hmm. But it, bringing it back to、uh, the the change of、uh, talked about how there's more sophisticated consumer coming about. So how do you change your design for that? Where do you? Which is not the operational part, right, or service related? It's it it, it isn't it isn't because most so most F and B operators will have a certain ideas to what kind of experience they want to create, and it's up to the designer to create that opportunity. And so, if there's, you know, so if I'll give you an example for a project that I'm working on right now. You know, we're we're doing this sort of Asian grill house restaurant, and our F and B team has got a very specific idea as to what they want to offer、mm. and the vibe that it should be,、um, and you know, notions of they want to be able to see the you know the fire on the grill、um, to give that you know people want to see a little bit of theater. Yeah. You know, we have a they wanted to have a chef's table that's integrated into the kitchen, and so you take that as a design brief and you plan that. Within your, your your four walls, and you design it so that we work. In my case, working with the designers, say, look, this is the kind of thing that we want to do,、um, and sort of give them a brief that allows them to understand that that sense of what we 
we're trying to achieve. Mm. And and so in in F and B in particular, things like uh, sort of celebrating or the theater you mentioned, you know, the fire. I mean, the old days it was uh, it was a flambe. Yeah, that was your theater. Nowadays you have a guacamole trolley. Right. Uh, Churrascaria has been around for a long time, but yeah. that was something that's going on. Open kitchens seem to be everywhere nowadays. Yeah, uh, very common uh, part of a restaurant experience. So. Some bars they make dessert gelato at your table, all of this stuff, right? Uh, so, so is that something that you see has taken off, or it's just ch changed and it's become more accessible, and it's it's uh, moved out of the fine dining into more of a broader market? Um, I would actually think, yeah, it's it this way. So, in in smaller neighborhood restaurants, you get to know the chef, you get to know the staff. Um, in fine dining restaurants, traditionally, what you're talking about is more of a more of a show. Um, you're going to see the convergence of that. Even in, in a fine dining restaurant, you want to you want the chef to come out. He doesn't want to be this mystery guy in, in the in the in the back, um, and you want that that human interaction. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he comes out and he does something, you know, doesn't you know he's not a clown. He's not there to perform yeah. at your table, but. To come in and to explain a dish, and people are much more sophisticated now with what they eat. Um, you know, I, I think going back to sort of, you know this COVID experience, people are cooking at home more. You know, people are learning to make cocktails at home, and so they want to learn. I think anyone, everyone has basically taken these few months to kind of learn something or do something different, purely because they have more time. Yeah. All right. They're not rushing to the airport anymore. They're not sitting on a plane for 13 hours. Um, you have more time on your hands, so do something different. Um, and so people are becoming more sophisticated because they're becoming more educated. And that's through their own experiences. That's through, you know, watching YouTube or, or, or looking on Instagram and looking at experiences and saying, oh, how do you do that? Yeah. So, so one thing about that uh, with Instagram and uh, also John mentioned, there's no more surprises in uh in hospitality or in F&B because everything is sort of, you read the review or you get the Instagram or there's a video, you know, they pour the olive oil over the chocolate right. and cook, it collapses, whatever, right? So do you still look to surprise guests in design when you when you approach something? Or, I mean, what, there's some places that have a real aha moment, yeah. but the second time you walk through that fridge door or phone booth into a club or into a bar, it's kind of an old hat, right? Yes. So that means you have to keep changing. And, and you have to keep on updating your menus. It has to be seasonal. It has to be ingredients that, you know, adapt to his, you know, what's what's you know in, what's around. Mm. You know, you use vegetables that are in season, or, or you change you know, your menu every few months just to keep people coming back, just so that, you know, when people look back at the Instagram, it's like, oh, I had that a year ago. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it has to be different. All right, and that's. That has its own sets of challenges. Absolutely. Now, you're, uh, since you're in design, a quick question about BIM, building information modeling. Mm -hmm. Is that something you, and then we'll talk about sustainability as well. Sure. What do you make of, uh, I mean, sustainability should be a no-brainer by now, but uh, BIM is something a bit more exotic still in Hong Kong. What do you, where do you see, is that something good, something that should be done more, or what's your take? I think it's, it's, it's becoming more and more integrated into what we do. That it's it's you know it's very soon going to be an essential tool. Um, you know, bigger property companies 
they have their own you know BIM teams. So that's that's all they do. Hmm. Um, I've only used it a few times in some of my projects, and I won't. I'll admit that I don't fully understand it, but it's it's an incredibly powerful tool um, when it's used correctly. And in order for it to be used correctly, it needs to have level of dedication and um, devoted to it. Otherwise, like any tool, if you don't use it correctly, then it's 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 pretty much you know you might as well not not use it. Right. And uh, buy in from all parties. In yeah, the process. All, uh, everybody has to buy in. Everybody has to actually. Everybody has to buy in. Literally buy in. Buy they have to buy in yeah. on the cost, right? There's a cost attached to that. Um, they have to appreciate it for what it does. Otherwise, you're not using to its full advantage. Um, so I've used it. I used it recently on a on a project in Australia, um, where you know it was it was an older property that that we were renovating and we looking at redevelop, and you know our our engineers went in and they used BIM and they used their the scanning technology to essentially map all our you know the entire building systems in that hotel, and so when you can tie that into your sort of your, your property management software then that becomes an incredibly powerful tool so, so essentially you have your building in sort of in the cloud it's, right. it's, you have this virtual building that allows you to maintain your building um, a lot easier and then obviously it's going to help you make it more efficient which saves cost yeah that's somewhat underappreciated by many of the people in the process I mean not everybody has embraced it let's put it that way yeah it and it's because people don't it's Yeah, and the costs are coming down, but it is also something that is difficult to understand, and not everybody fully understands it, and people tend to be wary of what they don't understand. Right. Fair enough. Um, in the interest of time, I believe sustainability, you can just say, yes, let's do it. I mean, is that a fair... Yeah, <laughs> you want to give a bit more color to it? Uh, I have a few closing questions, so we don't want to um, run too much. Yeah, I think it's essential. Yeah. Um, not only for us today, but you know, the next generation of, of hotel guests, which is such you know, my kids, you know, for them, it's just, it's just part of their, every single decision that they make now, there is a sustainable, it's in the back of their mind. And so if you don't address that now, then you're going to be sort of behind, you know, behind the times when it, and it'll be too late. Um, but hotels are, you know, very wasteful. And how do you, address sustainability and still you know keep choice keep service yeah. um any of the standards you subscribe to you should say so the lead is the one to go to or edge or there's so many i mean it's a bit difficult to uh you know to figure out what if there's a stand is there a gold standard or is it just you pick whichever one works for you tricky question um lead is the most internationally recognized standard but it may not necessarily be the best standard. Mm. Um, in my experience, we go with whatever the local standard is, and we adapt to that. Okay. And so in our projects, we use, say, LEED Platinum as a minimum, and then we go to the local standard. Wow, okay. Um, just because, you know, it's it also helps with approvals. At the end of the day, it helps with approvals. Absolutely. Okay, to close out, so a, bunch, a bit of advice from you, uh, Anybody who's looking to start their own hotel, from a design perspective, any any piece of advice would you tell them? Go to go to a hotel school. What's go to business school? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that wants to start a hotel or wants yeah, to design I mean, a hotel. Yeah, I mean, people that say start a hotel. 
Um, it can be big, can be small, right? Guest house, whatever. But once you get into the accommodation, the lodging business as an entrepreneur. Yeah. In in your in your in your podcasts with, with John about the diplomat, you asked him the question. You know, if anyone who opened a bar, he said it's like, do you want to have another child? Um, it's a similar answer. It's it's a you need to have an inherent sense of service, right? Um, you want to be happy, making other people happy, and there's if you're if you do it for glory, don't do it at all. Um, if you do it to put a feather in your cap, don't do it. Hotels are incredibly difficult things to to operate, and everybody has to be in the same wavelength. It's it's really it's it's a marriage, right? You're you're putting your your guest in front of you, ahead of you, um, and if you can't do that, and then then don't. Right? If it's for ego, don't do it. It's 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 not the business to be in. It's easier it's, ways. It's yeah. The you know when 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 I was doing mixed use projects in China, you know, the hotel is there for the brand, but it's the loss leader. Right? You build the hotel to set the brand. In order to sell your apartments to make money, and after yeah. that, you're on your own. That's a mixed-use game, anyway, right? Yes, I mean, standalone exactly right. hotels will be. It's, there won't be so many coming about anymore. I mean, it's a very rare breed nowadays yeah. to have a standalone hotel. Yeah, and and I and I think yeah, that that's definitely how you know, hotel properties are going to turn into lifestyle properties. It's not just about you know, selling rooms, or selling sleep anymore. You know, they're going to be they're, essentially the way I see hotels in the future. Um, it's basically a network of lifestyle products, and that network's going to be able enable you to sell a whole range of products and services, be it from co-working spaces or if they're social clubs or or F&B or spa experiences or even you know down to just selling products. So you have a few microcosms sort of coexisting under the umbrella of the hotel property. Basically, you have it becomes the life. hotel becomes a lifestyle brand. It's not just a hospital, like the. What we define as hospitality is going to broaden. It's not just about selling hotel rooms. Giving, we're not innkeepers anymore. Right? We're selling a lifestyle experience. Well, at the same time, you have the hotelization of real estate where, you know, in shopping malls, you have more, the whole pop-up scene and more F&B becoming right now that retail is going online. It's becoming more of a lifestyle experience there. Um, even in offices, you have more of a, service component coming in so do you see that sort of uh, it's going to be there's going to be a convergence and the right. lines are going to blur a lot more and who's going to drive that it seems hoteliers are extremely reluctant to step outside of their property and and you know even manage something across the street they're like <laughs> why should i be there at the end of the day it comes back to the owner okay right the owner says i'm going to so build a mixed use deal and i want you guys to okay if you don't want it i'll find somebody else to do it right um but i think hoteliers now are much more open to that they can see that they can see the, the sea change coming and that convergence of services, the convergence of products. Mm. Um, and those that are, you know, don't want to adapt, you know, I, I think are, are going to find themselves you know, um, at, at a disadvantage. Do you think that will be the biggest change in the next 10 years? Is that sort of increased flexibility of space? Because then you can, uh, you can change the use probably as well, right? You can tinker around, maybe some is more co-working and then you turn to something like something else, right? You increase the activity, then you know, uh, bring up the, the level. 
or you tune it down a bit so you have flexibility around how you play with space as well? I think so. I, I think that spaces are going to be designed to be more adaptable and flexible. Um, but there's also you know, now recognition that hotels can't survive by being hotels alone. You know, it has to be more. Um, you know, in this pandemic, you'll see that you know, hotels are adapting to be more than just hotels. They're being used as office space. They're being used as service apartments you know, for long-stay guests, use as quarantine centers. Um, so they're going to have to adapt. And, and I think that's going to be sort of permanent change mm. moving forward. Well, for the better, right? I mean, this, uh, is it better. commercially better? It's better for the guests? It's, it's, it's better for you the know, it's, it's definitely commercially better. You don't have all your eggs in one basket. And, you, you know, this has sort of made everybody realize, like, you know, if this happens again, you know, we're not going to be able to, to adapt if, as quickly. Yeah, and you make better use of your real estate, right? Because uh, in hotels, there's been a lot of wasted space where you're like, from a real estate perspective, uh, I guess some of the owners would scratch their heads like, why do we have this only busy once a day? <laughs> All right, um, closing out, uh, last question. Uh, the one thing that a hotel designer uh, needs to get ahead in the industry today, let's say maybe you're more junior or you sort of like, you know, middle first half of your career, what does it take to to get ahead? Um, I think it, it honestly, it all comes down to, to experiencing stuff. Right. You know, I, I, the, the, one of the, 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 one of the great things about being in this industry is the fact that we, good and bad, is that we travel a lot. Uh, but because we travel a lot, we experience a lot and we see a lot of different things and we're able to, to take lessons that we learn in different countries and through different cultures and bring that home. So they, they do it this way or this, you know, why don't we think about doing it how these guys are doing it? Um, and don't be too pigeonholed into what you think a hotel is or what hospitality should be, or what a hotel room looks like. Um, be open to creating spaces that suit a guest's needs. So almost forget about what a, the definition of a hotel is. Design a space that people actually want to be in. Right. right. And, and how good is it if you don't have any uh, any hotel background as a designer? Should you be... Uh, and we've seen this in a couple of times where I think it was Kengo Kuma or some guys come in, never did a hotel, and then he does a stellar job, right? Uh, how much is a designer's previous experience with hotels beneficial or detrimental to excelling? That depends on the designer. So if you look at, like we, I don't like to engage designers where they have a fixed style or they, their portfolio starts to look the same. You know, um, I prefer to, to have to, Engage designers that have a varied experience. Um, at the same time, I'm very sometimes hesitant to hire a designer that has no hotel experience because we're not going to be speaking the same language. When I would talk about, say, how a room is being used or, or concerns that, that the operators may have, they need to be able to understand that. So mm. I think having a certain level of experience is important. Being open to uh, listen to other people's experience is important. And so don't come in with any preconceived notions of what a hotel is because the operator will tell you what the hotel really, really is, what that guest experience should be. Um, 
I know. I think, it, I mean, in, in any, regardless of whether you're a hospitality designer, commercial designer, residential designer, uh, you should be open to criticism, open to other people's experiences and perspectives. Um, I don't think that it's specific to hospitality designers. But with hospitality designers, they have to also understand that you're not dealing with, you're dealing with somebody that experiences your space, you know, three to four days, and then they're, they're gone. And so you have to be able to design a space that works for them, um, is extremely efficient, um, and leaves a lasting memory because you want them to come back. Lasting memories comes from good experiences. So uh, on that note, we shall close. It was a great experience here. At, this was uh, fun. Mama always said, uh, on Peel Street, uh, which is its own phenomenon, we didn't get to talk about this neighborhood, which has seen its own transformation <laughs> and all that, but uh, maybe that's for another time. Uh, so, um, guys, hope you had fun. Uh, Julian, thanks a ton. Thank you. Uh, great. great having you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Follow us on YouTube, find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. We're there. Uh, Made-in.asia on our website. And uh, see you next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. All right. This is the end of the second part of our fourth episode with Julian Liu. Hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to follow us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, uh, or find us on Instagram, Made in Asia, the podcast. Our website is made-in.asia. Thanks for following.